Welcome back to The Filter with me, Matt Asher. It's been a hot minute, well, several months since the last episode. And going forward, this show will be a little different. So consider this a bridge of sorts. I'll explain the changes ahead for the show and the personal changes that are ahead and behind for me, the ones that cause the gap. Expect a mix of ideas and stories in this episode, and as usual, there will be some tangents, perhaps quite a few. The obvious place to start would be with an explanation of the gap, but this isn't a job interview, so I want to start back at the part I find most interesting, the whole filter thing, the whole lenses on reality thing. I find that not only really interesting, but also really concerning. A quick warning before I really get going, this is going to get abstract, like super abstract, though I will bring it back down to the concrete, which as my first aside is the name for one of my twin boys, and I'll probably mention the other one before the episode is done, but I assume the people who are into this show have a much higher tolerance than most for high entropy content. There are lots of other shows out there that tell you things you already know, or what you think you already know, shows that preach to the choir, reinforcing their listeners' existing views of the world in one way or another. And often that's fine. The choir needs preaching to and repetition or content that is a mix of high entropy at the most superficial way, like the thousandth short video you've seen of a practical joke. That stuff isn't bad. It's just not what I'm doing here. So fair warning that's what ahead isn't comfort food for your mind. So here goes. Our primary filter on reality is language. We generally don't see what we are seeing. We see the words used to represent those things. When you walk down the street, what you see isn't a blur of color and motion. What you see is a sidewalk, a road, a red Ford Explorer. The stuff in front of you maps to words, and while your eyes might deliver the world to you at better than 4K resolution, that experience gets immediately condensed into categories based on the taxonomy you began learning as a toddler. These filters, they aren't optional. They're essential to our everyday living because the cup of liquid in front of me has the label nice, cold, refreshing drink in my mind. I know that I can drink it. These words map to refreshing in my brain, but also they map to try not to drink too many, or you might have to get up and pee in the middle of recording. This may seem completely obvious and banal, but stick with me. I am going somewhere with this. The purpose of examining filters like language is to understand how they alter our perception of the world so we can adjust for that bias. This presumes an underlying reality exists, one that we can usefully approach in some way. But if the simulation hypothesis is right, which I am increasingly convinced of because I can't find any evidence to refute it, then what does it mean to get closer to the underlying reality when that reality 
isn't even remotely close to what we see. Remember that dress everyone was buzzing about in 2015, the one some people said was blue and others swore was gold? What if there was no dress and the reality was we were each seeing a matrix of pixel data stored in an image file that had been rendered onto our LCD screens according to a set of rules defined by the JPEG standard. In other words, what if reality went no deeper than the data and algorithms that rendered the digital images we perceived? If our world itself is built with something like code, then all experiences are of projections. We really are in a position as epistemologically retarded as the prisoner in Plato's cave, who knows the real world only from flat and distorted shadows that are cast onto the stone walls. But it gets even worse if we live in the matrix, if our world is a projection built from code and data, then to really understand what's happening, we would have to be viewing the code like Cypher in the Matrix movie, which is impossible enough when it comes to directly consuming the zeros and ones our computers handle with ease, but beyond impossible if you assume that our universe is a complex wetware of some kind, that our universe isn't binary, it's built on energy, on resonances, waves, and particles that are somehow the same thing because when we try to view anything in the raw, it freezes into a projection. We can't see the code itself because the code generates a fuzzy universe for us of probabilities and not certainties. And whenever we try and inspect it, what we see instead is a frozen path. In other words, to really understand the universe, what you want to see is the generating functions, but what you get is a string of actual numbers, concrete projections. But then, in an irony that brings us back around full circle, when we try and look closely at any of those numbers that represent data from a metrics that we're using, and I mean when you look really, really closely, the certainty about those numbers dissolves into air like your breath on a cold day. Take as a not-so-randomly chosen example the question of the length of the Mississippi River, which I once tried and failed to kayak in its entirety. The National Park Service says it's 3,710 miles, which seems like a cold, hard fact. And sure, maybe it needs to be reevaluated every few years, but it's a fact, right? at least certain to the three significant digits that we've been given. Which isn't wrong exactly, it's what's sometimes referred to as not even wrong, a label that refers both to things that are category errors and to things that are useful fictions, broadly speaking. In that sense, the concept of a singular Mississippi River with a singular length isn't so much incorrect as it is low res or medium res. It's a, a metric, which is to say a scalar projection that let me predict how many days it would take me to navigate from the source to the delta in my plastic yellow 16-foot kayak. If I assumed certain things about my paddling endurance and that I wouldn't wake up one morning with a swollen face and strange white dots on my eyelids that looked like some insect had used it for its egg sacs, which led me to abandon the rest of the trip entirely. 
But it's not wrong to talk about the length of the Mississippi River. It's imprecise and highly dependent on how closely you look. If you measure it with a single straight line as the crow flies, your metric is too low res to be of practical use in navigation estimates. But if you look too closely and try to measure the Mississippi at more and more granular levels, the very concept of it having a single measurable length or any length at all gets fuzzier and fuzzier until by the time you get to the atomic level, it dissolves into navel-gazing, semantics, or a debate about the nature of our universe. As humans, we survive and thrive by mastering just right levels of abstraction to successfully kayak down the Mississippi in any given moment of time. Besides avoiding strange maladies, you also need to understand the world at the right resolution, which is to say the right projection. But again, projection of what? The time gap in episodes of the show isn't due to an excess of navel gazing, at least not directly. It's because we moved in stages. Readers of my blog at mattasher.substack.com will know that I moved my family out of Florida. And if you're interested in why we left, check out my post titled Flexit. After leaving the Florida Keys, we spent a couple weeks in Miami, then a couple more in Canada visiting my wife's family and lining up a place to live where I am right now, which is Europe in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, in a neighborhood that is labeled on the maps West Indischbert, but no one seems to recognize that label, and I don't have a better one, so I keep trying out different descriptions, but geographically, it's about a 20-minute walk from the beginning of the downtown core, which is the area you almost certainly picture if you visited Amsterdam or seen photos of it, with all the canals and tall brick row houses. We moved here in part because of the particularities of the local real estate market, which I'm planning to invest in once our Florida home sells, but also because neighborhoods like the one we settled in exist here. I understand that some on the left are using the label of the 15-minute city as a weaponized justification to restrict freedom of movement and punish car owners, those political efforts need to be resisted by any and all effective means, and the people who push them should be dealt with as the petty and sometimes not so petty tyrants that they are. But don't let that color your view of actual walkable neighborhoods, which are glorious. Within a five-minute walk of our apartment here, we have several coffee shops, including both the kind that sell coffee and what the Dutch call a coffee shop, which is actually a place to buy and sometimes smoke weed. We have two grocery stores, one of them quite good, a gym, two small playgrounds for concrete and arrow. Our kid's doctor is a two-minute walk from us facing one of those playgrounds. We're just blocks away from a dozen restaurants, including a really good Italian place right on the corner of a residential street. I like driving as much as anyone, and I miss my little black sports car, but the quality of life in a place with high population density and relaxed zoning laws is just so much better than needing to drive everywhere. It would be nice if the Dutch learned to pick up after their dogs so I didn't have to avoid the many sidewalk poop bombs, but we don't get everything 
doing. I should deal with the fact that some of the things you do get here in Amsterdam, and I alluded to one of them already, those things the city is famous for. They are generally considered vices and often crimes, depending on where you live. I'm talking, of course, about pot and prostitution, which are both openly available, though both also controlled and corralled, though as mentioned, that doesn't mean you can't buy weed right in your neighborhood and as another aside, there's this chain of pot stores that has an outlet within a couple blocks of us that's impossibly clean, and the people behind the counter all wear white lab coats, and they have a guy out front in a dark jacket and black felt top hat and a chest camera pointing outward, and I can never tell whether the whole vibe there is uh, disturbing or, or just absurd, but I always nod to the doorman on the way by because, of course... People are understandably curious about my relationship to the vice thing, just as they were back when we lived near the beer-soaked mini-city of Key West, which is jokingly run by the drag queen mafia. There's a split in the liberty movement, which I still identify with broadly, between those who are libertarian because they want to live a libertine lifestyle in peace and those who are libertarian because they want their God-fearing, homeschooling, homesteading family of 10 to be left to live in peace. Both sides are suspicious of the other and perhaps for good reason. The thing both sides get wrong, but especially the Christian conservative crew, is that permissively liberal cultures have to go hand-in-hand hand with insufferably left-wing or woke politics. That presumption is, is too simplistic and sometimes backwards. Both Key West and Amsterdam have long histories of accommodating tourist populations that over the course of the year vastly outnumber the residents. My own experience is that places like these with a long history of accommodating degeneracy, as well as the kinds of tourists that that draws, also have certain antibodies against the harm that these things can do. If they didn't, the litter alone would have buried them deeper than the ashes from Pompeii within a month. For me, this is the beginning of my third round of life as an expat in my 20s. I spent a few years in Bolivia in my 30s and 40s. I spent a dozen years in Canada. We've now been here in the Netherlands for a couple months and hope to stay for a long time, in part because one more long-distance move might just kill me. Among the many things I like about living abroad, at least at first, is how it allows me to tune out politics. When we first arrived here, there was an election, and the only thing I really learned about it was the Dutch word for voting. Yes, I am aware of the broader political climate and very interested in the fight between the Dutch farmers and the EU supporting commies, but mostly for now and hopefully for a long time still, I can tune these things out beyond how they affect my possible investment in local real estate, as they say, not my monkey, not my circus, at least 
Not yet. I was doing a good job of ignoring local politics in Canada and even enjoyed the Rob Ford show as pure entertainment. He was, as you may recall, Toronto's obese crack-smoking mayor with zero filter on what he was willing to say, like when asked about allegations of infidelity, and he responded that he had more than enough to eat at home. In my memory, the Rob Ford era goes hand in hand with the time they found a monkey in a shirling coat and diapers in the parking lot of a local Ikea, an event which may or may not have overlapped this time, but either way, literally not my monkey, not my circus. So what does our move mean for this show? If you are consuming this episode in video form, you'll see I have a new recording space, which, despite its small size, is still very much a work in progress. When done, I'm planning to go back to having guests, lots of them, but exclusively in person, which of course will be limiting, but also freeing in ways I'll explain in, in just a moment. I'll be working on a pilot for season two of The Matt Asher Show, and by the way, season one is still available to stream for free at pbs.org or using their app. This next season may or may not be appropriate to air over the airwaves, as I'm tentatively planning to subtitle it Unfiltered in Amsterdam and take my conversations with others in a more personal direction. I'll still be talking about all of the things that I like to talk about, and if you want a feel for those, you can browse back through the podcast archive at mattasher.com. But I'm also interested in having more freeform, unconstrained conversations in a studio I hope will be very chazelig, the Dutch word for cozy, and a concept that seems to be at the core of the culture here. What does it mean for the filter to be more unfiltered? I'm not sure exactly, but I know that the richest experiences and often the most pleasant states of mind happen when we can at least partly drop the layers of abstraction that prevent us from taking in our world in a more raw way. Maybe we are, as I suspect, randomization devices living in a simulated universe and tasked with solving some complex problem for our creators, problems like how to have godlike powers without self-destructing. And those layers of abstraction may be the key to our role as actual computers. But there must be some reason we also crave the unmediated, the more directly experiential. In conversation, dropping the filter means speaking honestly in ways that are extremely hard. We tend to hide ourselves all of the time, and for good reason. I don't know if there is a true you, but I know for sure that certain things remain unexposed, self-centered in the broadest sense. This will always be the case for humans as we tend to curate ourselves, which I think is inevitable for social animals, at least the ones who haven't gone insane. But that doesn't mean we can't have some conversations unburdened by concerns about how they will be perceived by others. The gamble I'm making here with this new phase of the show is that such conversations can still be had and that I can have them and that they will be interesting to others. How well that gamble turns out is to a large extent in your hands as well as mine. I certainly hope you stick around to see how it 
turns out. One postscript, and an interesting coincidence of sorts, the music that began and will shortly end this episode is by a group called Black Box Red, and I first used it for a podcast episode that I recorded maybe seven years ago. It was a statistics blog podcast about uh, the problem of points, which is one of the earliest problems in probability theory, and I found out recently as I went back around to reuse this music for this episode that it was recorded actually not far from where I'm living right now and in the outskirts of a place called Fondle Park. So I hope you enjoy that and continue to enjoy the Matt Asher show as it evolves or the filter or the filter unfiltered. (laughs) 